When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. When Morgan came to me with the concept of psychic addiction, I was intrigued. Can someone become addicted to psychics? Can people become hooked on what mediums, legitimate or not, are telling them? An article in the Toronto Star quoting addictions researcher Dr. James McKillop from St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario, gave me some insight. In the article, McKillop says, quote, It certainly has some parallels to the classic addictions, drug addiction, and also pathological gambling. Starting small, escalating, developing what we would consider a tolerance, and then feeling that loss of control, engaging in what feels like compulsive behavior. They can offer an almost magical way to restore a relationship. I think even more powerfully, connect with a person who was loved and has now passed away. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so exploitative. An article on the website for St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton intimated that, quote, a string of negative events, including a death in the family, a divorce, and trouble with law enforcement have led a Toronto man named Jack, a pseudonym, to turn to five different psychics for help. After losing as much as $25,000, Jack was forced to sell his house, end quote. Some people have thrown hundreds of thousands of dollars at psychics looking for answers a sure thing outside of themselves, to tell them what they should do next. But what will a true psychic do? Hopefully, they'll teach you how to access these things within yourself. Here's Morgan to explain more. The beginning of 2020 began as normal, didn't it? No one, and I mean no one, expected the train wreck that seemed to follow, and no one was prepared. The emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual chaos began to take its toll on everyone as our often predictable world became tilted, spun, and smashed at our feet. Some of this was for good, some of it was for worse. No matter how one looks at what's happened, there is one thing which is really hard to deny. It has caused us to awaken. Awaken to our dreams, our fears, our realities, and most of all, our deepest questions. In our efforts to find our feet and search for answers in situations like this, The human nature is to fish for someone, something, anything, to give us reasons. We search for anything to tell us that we as individuals are special and aren't actually going to hell in a handbasket. Throughout history, we have done the same thing repeatedly. The scope of fortune-telling is, in principle, identical with the practice of divination. 
with the central difference being that fortune-telling takes a far less religious stance. Historically, the concept grows from the Romani people and the mysticism and magic it conjured in the minds of those who failed to understand it. In the 19th and 20th centuries, concepts such as the I Ching began to infiltrate the Western culture as a means of reading fortunes and the future, though it was strictly forbidden in religious practices such as Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. All three offer strict warnings against divination and such spiritual practices. The idea of fortune-telling has taken many forms over the centuries, including tarot, cardamancy, palmistry, pendulum readings, and even phone psychics. All, of course, have been labeled as cons at one time or another, and in certain places, it's illegal to call yourself a psychic and ask for money at all. So what are we looking for when we seek out a psychic or a fortune teller? Why is it that some individuals, and maybe it's you, spend tens of thousands of dollars on what often turns out to be scams? I'll tell you, as a paranormal researcher of nearly 20 years, this is what I've observed. The chief reason for the addiction to psychics and fortune-telling, which I've observed in people, has been a distinct lack of clarity. Now, this seems obvious at first, but let's dive into this a little further. How people finish the prompt of, I am, plays a crucial role here. I am is the creative force in the universe, and however you finish that sentence really does speak a truth over your life. We are full of I ams. Most of them aren't very affirming. And when we're talking to fortune tellers of any kind, letting them know how horrible things are is usually a high priority. Because, let's face it, most of us don't visit an oracle when things are going really well. I am confused can be turned into I am awaiting clarity. But usually our language tends to mirror negative situations. We are looking for someone to give us a reason to change our language without understanding that our language shapes our situations. Without a change in language, our situation repeats themselves, like a needle on a phonograph that keeps skipping. We think we're stuck, when in fact, we're simply creating the same circumstances again and again. As life coach and spiritual teacher Ianla Van Zandt once said, if you complain more than you bless, run for your life. Waiting for situations to change, to get happier, is a nasty trap that many fall into. They are waiting on the how, without understanding that sometimes the how is on a need-to-know basis. The universe has a way of unfolding the next steps. If you are bringing yourself into full belief that the next steps will indeed be there. But instead, people often decide to get on the phone with a paid fortune teller of various kinds, hoping that an outside party will just pass them the next steps without their own inner work. Here's the problem. The purpose is in the process. If you're constantly saying, I'm sick of where I am, you're telling the universe you won't be able to handle the promotion. People want the promotion without the process. They're looking for the cards, the person, or the pendulum to somehow tell them that they are destined to all these amazing dreams and all they have to do is just wait it out. But that's not how this universe operates. You find greatness when you start maximizing smallness. If you can master where you are, you get promoted to the next arena. If you're not motivated now, you're not gonna get motivated when you get the dream that you want. I'm a performer, straight up. I come from a strong theatrical background, and so does my family. All of us know, through our own, often brutal experiences, that you can't be picked for the performance if you don't show up for rehearsal. It just won't happen. 
You must experience the process and be there for the practices. The practices aren't the fun part. We all attend these incredible shows or watch our favorite people on TV and are inspired by their performances. But we miss the hours behind the scenes when no one is clapping. The hours and hours of load-in, rehearsal, sweat, repetition, and more where there is no positive outside affirmation. Can you play without the clapping? This is a huge part of the picture that fortune tellers often won't include in their readings. The purpose is in the process. You can't sit with someone who has been in it for 30 years and expect to be treated as an equal. And if you have an attention deficit for your life, if you lack focus, you won't get picked for the recital. It's just that simple. And often, it's the reason why people will tell you, I had this dream, the psychic told me that it could come true, but nothing happened. See, the masters, all those people that we look up to, are playing with the same energy. They're just playing at different levels. Beethoven's piano is the same piano that you can buy today. In fact, the one you can buy today is probably many steps up from anything he could ever find when the piano was first in development. It's the same instrument, roughly, but he played at a different level. He had the capacity to see beyond the instrument itself and see the potential. What you will be comes with focus and universal energies will turn it into where you are going. When you maximize it, you can sit with the masters. The problem is, fortune tellers give us a quick fix. They tell us it's all in the cards. And somehow, that gives us permission to quit making strides. We sit back and wait, hoping that those words will just come true without process. The failure to understand the energy is coupled with another deep-rooted issue a failure to define ourselves correctly. The need to have others define us is often a root cause of how individuals become addicted to psychics and fortune telling. So when we lose a job, a role, or a person, we lose ourselves. If we have the wrong people around us as a social group, we can lose ourselves there as well. Many times the callers have a secret longing as they seek a new identity. Will I be married? Will I have a new job? What is meant for my life? Will I ever be happy? Well, will you? Can you take what you have developed and mastered and make it fit with a greater picture? Have you made that decision or are you dependent on the fickle crowd to tell you what you will be doing with the rest of your life? A fun reading here and there can be great entertainment. The danger comes when people begin to turn to this medium over and over, seeking guidance and negating the wisdom of their inner self, their own personal work, and for those who hold spiritual or religious beliefs, what non-physical energy actually has in store. The fix of momentarily feeling a little bit better becomes a relief from anxiety that, without examination, will just begin to build again. This, in turn, sends the individual right back to square one and lands them back at the psychic's door, handing over more money that they don't often have to give. I often say that a true healer, if they are worth their salt, will empower their client to do the work for themselves. They have a long-standing formula of, I'll do this for you. Now, let me show you how I did it. Therein lies the true nature of the master. And when you know you've got something worth their salt, this is always present. The depth of the purpose without process problem is something we can observe less in the field of parapsychology and more obviously in the realm of ghost hunters or hobbyists. 
A lack of patience and focus for the process of science, learning, and fact collecting becomes terribly blatant in the hunt for the best evidence or the most shocking find. But this rings true for our current culture as well. Instant everything. We don't get immediate gratification, we lose focus, and we give up. It's an extremely immature way of viewing ourselves, the world, and others, but it has become far more prevalent as the means of getting what we want instantly become more available. And we want people around us to affirm that those things that require process must be instant as well. They must be a sure thing and on a sure and steady path, and it must all be guaranteed to us. This faulty thinking runs us into big trouble when we don't put in the work to do what we need to do in the rehearsal and then, when it comes time to show up for the recital, the person who understands the deeper purpose because they showed up gets the job in the end, leaving us to blame the reader, blame the employer, blame God, or blame others for simply just not getting it right. After all, it was in the cards, right? There's also a bit of a false premise to the idea that future is something that actually hasn't happened yet. Time and the idea of linear time with a set pace can be viewed as a simply human construct through quantum and particle science, we have since come to understand that there is actually no future, but rather a series of moments all happening in the now. So the past is now, the future is now, and when we get to said future, it's only happening now. Jesse Elder, a popular philosopher, gave a very memorable example using the idea that our reality is actually a series of probabilities, like a house with millions of rooms. As we focus, those rooms begin to collapse. All those probabilities begin to narrow until we are all left standing in one room. The probability we have focused into our experience. Fortune tellers and psychics do indeed have a say on these probabilities. If we truly believe what someone tells us will happen, truly will happen. Just in the same way that we can focus a curse into existence, we can also focus a suggested probability into existence as well. Once it's suggested, it is now in the realm of possible manifestations. In an essay published in 1824, a philosophical essay on probabilities, Pierre-Simon Laplace introduced a notorious hypothetical notion, a vast intelligence that knew the complete physical state of the present universe. Dubbed Laplace's demon by the readers and colleagues, there would be no mystery about what had happened in the past or what would happen at any time in the future, this brand new and imagined intelligence would be the universe itself, reflecting ideas of, not a thought experiment. Ordinary physical theories tell you what a system is and how it evolves, and quantum mechanics does this as well. But it also comes with an entirely new set of rules. It governs what happens when systems are observed or measured. However, measurement outcomes cannot be predicted with perfect accuracy. We can only calculate the probability of getting a certain outcome, leading to something called the Born Rule. The wave function assigns an amplitude to each measurement outcome, and the probability of getting that result is equal to the amplitude squared. So then, what is a probability? There are two categories on the surface, objective or physical. Think of a coin toss, but there are also subjective and evidential views that take into account people's perspective, filters, and belief systems. Quantum mechanics, as, as it is currently understood, doesn't really help us choose between competing conceptions of probability, because ultimately, you can't find a formula in quantum physics for all of them. In the end, we can look at it this way. 
as a way of self-locating uncertainty. All we must do is consider the set of all possible worlds, all the different versions of reality one could possibly conceive. In other words, all the rooms in the house. In some ways, the role of probability as expressing our personal preferences and desires about which of these possible worlds is the actual one, now we are in the realm of exploring new universes, new realities, and choice-making, rather than simply flipping a coin. So, what does this all mean? It means good news and bad news. The good news, you get to choose. The bad news, well, you get to choose. It's not the prospect many people want, even though they think they do. This concept comes with something profound and rare. Responsibility. Without the crutch of having someone to tell us that we have no choice, our future is pre-written. It means that the only one who can take ownership is us. We are forced to iron out what we really want, what we don't want, and how we can co-create our reality moving forward. Unfortunately, the last piece of advice one often gets from a corner store psychic or fortune teller is, you create your reality. You get to choose. And the universe will support you, dream with you, encourage you, rally behind you, and blow your mind in the process. So, let's tell our own fortune. I'll give you a hint. It's even better than your cards will tell you. Our guest for this episode is no slouch. Dr. Callum Cooper is a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Society, BPS, and a fellow of the Higher Education Academy, HEA, holding postgraduate degrees in psychology, social science research methods, and education from the University of Northampton, Sheffield Hallam University, and Manchester Metropolitan University. He has a long-time association with the University of Northampton and is based there as a senior lecturer in psychology, delivering classes and conducting research on death and bereavement, positive psychology, human sexual behavior, parapsychology, and research methods. He is a member of organizations such as the Society for Psychical Research, sitting on its council, and the Survival Research Committee, a professional member of the Parapsychological Association, a Hope Studies Research Affiliate, University of Alberta, and of the research groups Health, Education, and Behavior Change, and Exceptional Experiences and Consciousness Studies, EECS, at the University of Northampton. Callum is also on the Scientific Advisory Board for the Forever Family Foundation and for the Winbridge Research Center. So when I first read that biography, I thought, oh no, we are in for a real academically dry conversation. Boy, was I wrong. I was pleasantly surprised to find that Dr. Cooper, Cal, is an engaging, funny, and interesting presenter. The time we spent with him just flew by. Anyway, here's the conversation that we had. So I am really, really happy today as one of my, my dear friends is here, Dr. Cal Cooper, and there's so much on the table that I've, I've learned from you, and I know so much that the, the people listening are, are going to learn from you as well, because you're such a wealth of, of amazing information and research. And one of the things that I love about what you study is positive psychology. And it is something I think that is so needed right now in both the world of parapsychology and just the world in general because of where we are with things. What was the moment for you when you realized, or was it a moment, when you realized that positive psychology and parapsychology blended together a little bit? 
Um, well, as an undergraduate, I'd done a, a module, um, my, a third year module called Motivation and Emotion. And it was led by a gentleman called uh, Dr. Graham Smith. And he was the, the very kind of figure of positive psychology that you could imagine. If you picture what a positive psychologist was like, he was definitely it. He oozed positivity. He made you feel good about anything and everything. It doesn't matter what kind of grade that you came out with. He would talk to you about all the positives of your assignment and how even the bad bits actually had some positives in, just needed to be looked at in a different way. He was really good at just not putting people on a downer and, and to actually turn any kind of situation that some people might see as a negative into a positive. Uh, and so I really enjoyed his company and his lectures. And I did a lot of volunteering work um, as an undergraduate for um, high school students coming in, trying to get a university experience um, for the day. And Graham was leading on those things. And so we'd also put some positive psychology in there. But it wasn't until um, a few years later that I decided to go back to Northampton to um, pursue a, a PhD. Um, but I, I kind of got a loose idea that I wanted to look at um, apparitional experiences. Ghosts and hauntings had always been my interest. Um, so certainly something around spontaneous apparitional experiences. And then it started to overlap with, well, what about those specifically around the time of bereavement or perhaps bed visions? Um, and so it was starting to get a spin of the, the health aspects were starting to come out of this rather than looking at the, the evidentiality of these claims, you know, what objective nature might they have? What about the messages received? What about multiple witnesses seeing them? Um, I needed to create more strings to the bow really um so that the phd once it was done you know it could be used for a number of things you, you want the qualification the thesis to actually have practical applications in, yeah. instead of just making scientific discoveries so i went back to graham's office had a catch up with him i'd already decided i wanted him to be on the supervisory team for my phd and i just said to him look it'd be great if we could have a positive psychology spin in all of this what do you recommend and so I'd already told him the premise of what I got so far. And all I remember from that conversation was him sat in his chair, sitting back a little bit, probably putting two fingers together near to his lips and having one of those thinking moments. And he just looked at me and said, look at hope. And that was it. That's all I remember from that conversation. Um, wow. And so I went away and I started reading, um, I think it was Snyder's book, which is just called The Psychology of Hope, which came out in 1994. That was the starting point for me exploring how that fits into people's everyday experiences, anomalous experiences. Uh, I just, yeah, gave me goosebumps when you, <laughs> when, you, when you said look at hope because mm -hmm. it is just, Mike, you probably were on the same page with that as well. I totally was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah, it just it just gives me goosebumps because I think, it is an area of this that people don't, they just don't realize that so much of parapsychology is really, it, it can can really connect you with that. And, you know, I know you deal with a lot of, a lot of, of students and whatnot and people that are going through the journey of understanding these concepts like death and bereavement and things like that. What are some of the biases or beliefs that you run into amongst a lot of these people, students and adults? Um, if we're just on the, the health side of things, um, how these experiences might benefit people, um, not very many. There's still a common assumption and something that we always have to throw very hard, 
hardly to, um, hard towards the um, ethics committee if I'm getting a student to look at these similar experiences, either the spontaneous ones or people visiting mediums and what benefit they felt from those two experiences that for them suggested this interaction with the dead. Um, and an ethics reviewer that may be a psychologist but not familiar with this literature may have the assumption that, well, it's probably not best to draw up these kinds of memories because these are very negative experiences. When on the contrary, when you actually look at all the data from research that has been done on these experiences, they're extremely positive for people to have them. In fact, it's round about two, three percent of survey cases in general that will find that someone had a negative reaction. And even then, when you target those cases and ask those people, well, what happened in your case? It was usually, well, it initially scared me because, you know, I looked up and saw my uncle stood in the room and he died the day before. So it really took me back. OK, well, how did you feel a week later thinking back on it? Well, actually, I, I saw it as a good thing. Well, so they're talking about the initial reaction being scary or they saw them in a, um, a blooded state or, um, you know, they died of something like, say, cancer. And it, it really started to withdraw their physical features away. And, and they looked like that as the apparition, which is very rare. But maybe those are the reasons why some people saw it as a negative, because it was more about the instant surprise or the condition of the apparition rather than, well, what does this actual reconnection mean for you in terms of, you know, their potential continued existence or how you thought about life and death? So there, there might be those misconceptions that they're scary or they're harmful for people when actually, you know, we survey them, they're, they're largely very helpful for people. And some people not sure, but it takes time to consider them or speak to an expert about them and to highlight this research or point them in the direction of literature they can read for themselves to compare their experiences to others, which might also help them as well. Um, on the other side, um, you know, if we're just testing and exploring well, what evidence is there for people seeing ghosts, that can result in a, a many other kinds of negative reactions where we still see a lot of um, unusual biases that could be religious-based, cultural-based, people's educational backgrounds, um, especially if they've, you know, they've gone through basic schooling, but they had teachers that were very materialist in their way of thinking and they didn't know anything about parapsychology or various sciences that you really don't get to dabble with until you hit university and become aware of them and uh, know how to get access to that kind of literature. Um, but for one example, I was at a, a house party once where someone asked me what I did for a living and I think very carefully sometimes as to whether I say I'm a psychologist, in which case they usually right. leave me alone. Um, because um, some people just don't want to talk to the psychologist think, <laughs> thinking that they're analysing them or, you know, looking down on them in some way, trying to figure them out, treat everyone like a pet experiment, um, or um, parapsychologist. And either they know what that is and have a load of assumptions, or they don't know, so you explain from scratch, or they have a sort of idea, uh, and in which case sometimes you can get actually a very pleasant and interesting conversation. But on this occasion, um, this guy asked what I did or maybe his wife did anyway i said parapsychologist and this guy just interrupted and he said what that's all ghosts and psychics isn't it oh, no. i said well in a very very crude nutshell yes and he said well that's nonsense there's no evidence for any of that and i said well that's a very large claim to make i, I don't know where you've got that assumption from but let me give you one example i work for the university of northampton there alone we store thousands upon thousands of studies within our journals that have found evidence for and against various things in very tightly controlled experiments. So if you're saying that stuff doesn't exist, I'm afraid I, I walk past and I touch that stuff every day. 
I also deal with the archive stuff. So you're more than welcome to come over and I'll buy you a coffee and you can peruse that stuff that you say doesn't exist to your heart's content. Um, and he just got really annoyed. He said, no one has such a job. There's no evidence for that. Um, it's all nonsense. And he, he grabbed his wife's hand and he said, that's it, we're leaving. He left like wow. within five minutes of talking to me. So for some people, it's a very knee-jerk, angry reaction if you're very politely conveying the information to them. And it just really rocks the cradle. It really upsets their worldview um, because they have nothing else to argue on. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally, totally get that because I've run into the same thing myself. And, and I think you're right about the, the worldview thing. I, I think that really gets to the heart of it because the way I've I've found it is that it, it always seems to disrupt a paradigm if their paradigm is very materialistic. And it, it's, it seems that way for, for me as well, because I've, I've run into the same thing where it's either you can have a really, really great conversation and, you know, people want to tell you about things that have happened to them or whatnot. Or, you know, you get this really sort of offstandish, you know, they don't know what to do with it. So the next step is almost to get angry at it or to get frustrated with it. Mm -hmm. and, and the main thing to do, I think, with that and any argument you get in um, day to day, the, the best stance you can do is just, you know, and collect yourself and be as calm and polite and don't yep. don't if they're changing in tone stay to the same tone they expect you to also get to that tone as well. <laughs> yes. if you stay down at that level this there's a sort of a panic reaction in them that you've got this you, you know what you're talking about with that command of your topic you don't need to um uh, get into their situation where it seems they're starting to have to defend themselves by changing their their tone of voice or the language that they use. I mean, we see this on Graham's hierarchy of argument, if either of you have ever seen that pyramid. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, I've got one student that's been looking at how psi data is discussed online in a variety of formats from uh, YouTube commentary sections underneath each YouTube video. I'm sure both of you have read comments people make on videos on there and we, we've looked at the dialogue there. I'll try not to. <laughs> try not to, but sometimes <laughs> we have and we've compared videos between different talkers that are, are known for, I don't know, being very pro-sci or being very anti-sci. Um, we've looked at um, Facebook dialogues and um, saved certain chains that were very important in terms of how the dialogue took place. And um, wiki talk pages as well about how certain editors would interact with each other um, around topics as well. And um, we've seen in that that if an authority steps in and they calmly explain a good point of reference and why it's relevant and they're up against someone that's trying to dominate it, but they don't know what they're talking about, then there's a number of things they resort to. Some is name calling. Um, I've been referred to as dog a lot of times on those those forums, whatever the hell that means. I, I guess it's derogatory to call me dog. Um, um, I've gotten evil, so I can one-up that one. Okay. <laughs> um, they would figure out what university I was at and then think about where it was on the UK rankings. Oh, you know, it's hardly even in you know the top 12, blah, blah, blah. Or they turn to parapsychology journals and how big an impact factor have they got or say you can't provide any evidence for this and you provide a number of citations, they realize that they're from parapsychology journals, so they're not open access. And they say, can't you give me a web link? Well, no, because these aren't digitized. You have to pay the subscription. Otherwise, they just wouldn't <laughs> yeah. exist because the editor has to be paid. They're very small time journals, but it's very honest research that's subscribed to by a lot of people who pay their membership. Um, Absolutely. So there's a lot of swings and roundabouts there, and it doesn't matter 
what kind of thing you put in place sometimes in your argument. Sometimes you get these very petty responses of name calling, being derogatory towards institutes or the journals, finding anything and everything to say besides, well, let's just focus on this one paper and talk through the methods you say are crap. So clearly it's something, the reaction, this strong reaction is you're threatening some sort of belief in those people. What do you think that is? What do you think is the root of that? Well, some people, I think it was Dean Radin, there's certainly a few other people, um, possibly Brian uh, Josephson um, referred it to uh, referred to it as a psychology of disbelief. Uh, you know, you, you get some people that are on one extreme end of the scale where they're absolute psychology of believers. And it doesn't matter what you say about the orb they caught on the camera or the experience that they had that you think, I've got a perfectly conventional explanation for that. They don't want to hear it. It absolutely was something unusual, unexplained, and you can never explain to me how it occurred. It just exists as an anomaly, whatever the hell that means. All anomalies are just sections of science that science hasn't properly charted yet. It doesn't permanently exist as an unexplained thing. There should be some mechanism behind it. Um, and then on the other end of the scale is saying, well, there is no new anomaly. We already understand it all. So don't go around thinking that you're dealing with anomalies here. You're dealing with things already understood and you're in fantasy land. Um, and so I suppose that's one end of the spectrum where you've got these sort of post-materialist beliefs, but without really any science backing or understanding of science whatsoever. And people very much in this spiritual domain, a carefree domain where they just don't want to hear about science. And then the other extreme end of the spectrum where it's very hardcore materialist um, perspective, but without any knowledge and um, willingness or interest to actually read any of the literature to the contrary. You know, parapsychology, well, that's fringe science. Who cares about that? We don't take any of that seriously. It's not even a proper science. That's why universities don't touch it as a common assumption. Yeah, and that, I, that makes it makes a lot of sense, you know, with, with both ends of the spectrum. We were talking to um, Lizette Coley about something very similar to that um, in the last episode. And uh, she she was saying just the same thing. And of course, for the audience, she's the founder of the Parapsychology Foundation uh, in New York. And she, and she was echoing the exact same sentiments. Uh, and there's a lot of, of controversy and things like that around the use of, of people like psychics and, and whatnot to help to help people through the grieving process. What have you learned about that? Oh, Lizette, she's my mama across the pond. <laughs> I love her. Um, the, the grieving process here for the, the spontaneous experiences, we, we've even found in textbooks by Oliver Lodge and a number of other people um, talking about uh, the rise of spiritualism and, and early investigation, psychical researchers' attitude towards seance phenomena and um, especially with his book Raymond as well, looking at his own son's demise during World War One, and the amount of people as well during World War One that did lose their lives and the amount of families that never got any kind of resolution. They never really discovered what happened to their relative and got to say goodbye. So a number of people were turning to spiritualist beliefs, attending seances and wanting any kind of message to come forward, really, to give them that clarification that they're OK or there is an afterlife or find out what happened. Um, there was even a, a lot of spiritualist stuff surrounding Titanic as well. I mean, Titanic's still an extremely romantic tale and, and true disaster, as we know, um, but has a lot of psychical stuff related to it in terms of the amount of premonitions that came forward 
but true. It was its maiden voyage, and a lot of people had maritime superstitions about maiden voyages, and right. they shouldn't shouldn't take them. But someone's got to sail it first. <laughs> um, so, um, but still, there was a lot of stuff about contact with people like um, W. T. Steed and, and people like that after it sank. Um, but it brings about this this resolution. This is what I was looking at in the first PhD, where we were looking at hope because we looked at a number of more modern books that have been pushed out to the public about loosely what parapsychology had discovered in its surveys and individual cases, and then the authors, mainly from various academic backgrounds, but not particularly known to parapsychology, had talked about various elements, key elements that came out of certain cases. And that's why I found in some chapters, they said, hope is a healer, or just sections just on hope. Even if you go to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's first well-noted book from 1969 on death and dying, there was a whole chapter there that is just entitled Hope. So when we looked at the, the books on after-death communications and, and tried to find where hope was mentioned, I'd be searching the indexes, and if they didn't have that, I'd trawl through every page just looking for the word hope and in what context they're using it. And um, people would say, well, the experience gave me hope. And more and more we saw, well, none of the authors are really defining what they mean by hope, but we're seeing a lot of the experience they're reporting that the experience gave them hope. Hope in terms of psychology is purely a form of goal attainment. You can have small hopes and you can have big hopes. At the end of the day, you could hope to sit in front of the telly, crack open a bottle of beer and chill out with a takeaway, something like that, because you've had a long, hard day. So you're already yeah. you know, partway into the morning picturing that that's how you want to spend your evening once you get home. Well, wonderful. That's a very small hope. That's very achievable. Um, most people are able to have access to that kind of lifestyle in the evening. So what do you do? Well, it's, it's not that simple. You've still got the day to complete. You've still got work to do. And so you've got to think about, well, what's my next task of the day? And then I've got a lunch break and stuff. So what, how am I going to spend this next hour or next two hours? It's all in little stages of, I just need to get through this bit first. And then I've got this. That's my next stopgap. That's the next mark of the next flag. And then the afternoon starts as well. And I want to make sure that I've you know, I've got so many of these ticked off my list of things to be done and these emails need answering as well. So I'll write down the names of these people that specifically need a response. Bit by bit, you're creating a mental path, whether you're making these notes or not, but you're making a mental path of all these flags you've got to get past to know that the day is done. I can go out, I can order or go and collect that takeaway, pick up some beers, go home. That's it. Take my coat off, whatever. Wash your hands, shoes off, sit on the sofa and then open and enjoy. It wasn't that simple of as just thinking about it and then it happened. You still had to do so many things to complete the day. Right. But in mind of having that biggest flag of I want that at the end of the day. And that's a small hope that the statistical chances of that happening are very, very likely. You could also have a hope of winning the lottery, though. And that becomes on the larger scale because the chances of winning the lottery are very slim. But they're going to be very, very, very slim if you don't even buy one ticket. One would have to just blow in the wind in your direction that someone's bought that day <laughs> that's suddenly gone out of their hand or bag. So that's the difference between wishing and hoping, though. You could wish to win the lottery, but you're not buying tickets. Well, good for you. That's just wishing. And wish fulfillment might come about, but it's highly unlikely. If you hope, though, there's an action involved. And that action is saying, right, so I'll get up. I've got the money here, my $2 or whatever for a lottery ticket. And I'll go and get them to just do a lucky dip. Random numbers come out. There we go. I've got one ticket. If you've got Four dollars spare, great. Get two tickets, maybe. Up your chances ever so slightly, ever so, ever so slightly, but still, it's better <laughs> right. than one ticket. And and so there, you're also you're in it to win it. 
but the chance is different, but they're still forms of goal attainment. How do we relate this back to the after-death communications? Well, when someone has one, when they say the experience gave me hope, it's on a kind of a, a, a grand scale of, of life and where life is moving forward. So we all have this mystery of death and not really knowing what lies beyond the Iron Curtain. And these experiences give us a potential glimpse of what's going on there. So I've interviewed and received accounts from people that are on every end of the educational spectrum, every end of the belief scale spectrum. And yet, if they were in the right place at the right time, they seem to have one of these experiences from dreaming of the dead, to seeing them, to sensing their presence, to smelling them. And they find that these completely flip on their head sometimes, some of their, their previous views and are really impactful. When they say, though, it gave me hope, it could be that it confirms, it makes more concrete some of their pre-existing ideas about the maybe the mind lives on after death in some way. If this person came back and spoke to me and interacted with me, then surely there's some conscious awareness or some element of personality is retained after we die. So it's giving them that. Um, at the very least, it's a win-neutral situation. I don't see it as a lose. Some people have found that an unusual analogy. But um, it can't be a lose because if you die and there's nothing there, you won't know about it. So a neutral situation is being dead and having no conscious awareness and you just really wouldn't know about it. The positive side is you do become reunited or you do live on. And that's the hope that you're getting from that kind of experience. So that's how I'm thinking that as a cognitive process, people are thinking through what this experience means to them. And so they've had their experience. That means that in life, they can just start to form goals, carry on. Um, you know, start living your life. Don't stay in that state of grief. It fast tracks the whole grief process. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, I I couldn't agree with you more. And the the more people that I've I've talked to over the years, it's it's been exactly that that where you know they they have found that 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 experience to to really get them to to live in in a better way. They they can sort of live their best life as they say and it's it's it really an interesting transformation for for a lot of the people that I've I've talked to as well with with psychics and people going to to psychics for these experiences. We all know there's that that small percentage of people who, you know, you hear about them becoming very addicted to going back to phone psychics and and things like that where they're they're relying on this these predictions and information and and whatnot to 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 dictate what's going on in their experience. When when do you think those roles and those dynamics start to become toxic? To be honest, there's not been. I mean, certainly mediumship's been studied very extensively by um, psychical research and parapsychology, um, and and the difference between the two of those disciplines now that the line is is almost blurred because both are one and the same. Psychical research was the traditional form of collecting survey data real world experiences and trying to make sense of them whereas parapsychology became the experimental side um but essentially both fields parapsychology was more university based and trying to get psychical research established but both disciplines are interested in um survival through to esp um but parapsychology by name more esp and, and pk um i digress um <laughs> the um with the That's um, okay. <laughs> mediumship side of things and, and when people are grieving, um, certainly studies by people like Julie Byshaw, um, Rachel Evenden and others have been uh, looked at in terms of, again, the benefits of people going to see mediums. But we have questioned this before, that that's a bit of uncharted territory in terms of how much is enough. Uh, at what point does it become 
yeah. addictive um, to the point that it's gone past the point of helping that person. They need to now spread their own wings and move on without the, the medium being there. Um, but to many people, and especially the medium, if they're, let's say they're not taking pay, um, they just this is just something that they offer. Maybe is it just a friend of a friend that they know or something like that? It's being seen as an alternative to um, bereavement counselling through a counselling psychologist or psychotherapist. Some people go to mediums in those instances because they fear the social stigma from their friends, family, colleagues, that they can't cope with grief, that they actually are starting to have a problem. And therefore, you need to go and see a healthcare practitioner to help you deal with it. People don't want to be seen in that context sometimes as though it's some sort of weakness that you have to go and talk to someone. So to go to a medium, um, which in, in many instances has to be labeled as a form of public entertainment and just, oh, I'll go along, see what it's like, should be interesting. People go for one-to-one -one readings all the way through to going to a theater and seeing them perform on stage or a spiritualist church. Um, and so they prefer that, that entertainment side where they can even talk to friends, have a cup of tea, coffee afterwards, chat about it, maybe go out for a meal or go for these one-to-one -one sessions. Um, but at some point, though, you, you have to gain something from it and say, right, okay, if they want to believe that person's with me now, I'm satisfied with what that medium said, then it's time to move on and maybe recognize day-to-day -day spontaneous experiences if you have them. Otherwise, it's like you're constantly paying, um, you know, the, the phone booth for more calls to the dead, in a way, getting this direct line if they really believe they're getting it. Um, but if they're doing that, if it is a paid service with mediums, I'd say that at some point that might become a problem if it's actually starting to get to the point where they're spending more than they can afford. Or um, if the, the medium's encouraging them to go back as well, because they've got a duty of care, they should be, um, you know, thinking ethically about what they're doing as well. And I've known many mediums when I spoke to them saying, you know, I've seen someone twice about their bereavement. And the third time I said, look, you please you don't need to do this anymore. I've told you what yeah. you need to hear from them. They're, you know, and they might say, they're telling you, you don't need to hear directly through me anymore. So there's all, sometimes these mediums that I've, I've known, they've said, they've had to tell the client, please, you don't need to come back. Well, and the empowerment aspect of this, I think is so important. You know, I think there's been, been so much research that has been done, you know, of, of literally people having their own experiences or, or being able to quiet their mind and, and receive messages and, and people that believe they're receiving messages and, and things like that. And I love how there are this, you know, the these select group of uh, groups of, of mediums that have been studied and, and whatnot that are empowering the, the people that they're seeing. And, and I love I love that. I love that so much. Hmm. I mean, I mean, I I haven't specifically with what I do. I mean, I, I've, I've got my foot in many doors with parapsychology and I've got loads of colleagues working on, on the mediumship stuff. Even one of my PhD students is focusing on um, mediumship. But it's even though I'm even surrounded by some, not only SPR proceedings and things like that, I've got a fair few biographies and autobiographies of certain mediums through time that, you know, no one ever really figured out what was going on with them. Yeah. Everyone from Eileen Garrett to Mrs. Piper, Mrs. Leonard, um alex tanis you know a number of this even obscure names that i don't rec like here, here's one here i've not even read it who's this arnold clare who's he but so, <laughs> so you know someone's written a whole study on him and there yeah. are many that came out through the psychic book club and psychic press where some people had followed a certain medium in the 1920s and 30s for so long they end up writing that person's biography 
and um, sometimes extremely detailed seance room layouts in those little books. Harry Price did it with Stella C, Stella Cranshaw. Um, And so, you know, we've got these named individuals that people tried their best to put conditions in place to rule out any kind of fraud or sensory leakage going on and various other things. Even with the the Schneider brothers, Will and Rudy Schneider, Mm -hmm. Harry Price had uh, electrified the seance circle. (laughs) Um, so um, Rudy Schneider would be um, tied up in the corner of the room, um, arms and, and legs tied down to the chair, and the people were sat around the seance table, and they'd have to put on gloves and slippers, and it would complete the circuit. And if you started to um, take off your glove or the slipper, even if it, it started to loosen itself, it would light up a red light bulb in front of that sitter. And so Harry would say, could you just check your glove and tighten it again for me? And it would then close the circuit again and the light bulb would go off. So he knew that no one was releasing their hands or feet from their position around the table. And and that was an instance of physical effects going on around in the the seance room. Um, So yeah, we've got all these these mediums um, throughout time. And and those are ones where they were coming out with very specific information that for people that knew those deceased individuals, they were very satisfied they were getting some direct communication. Whereas day to day, the kinds of people that you might see at the theater in passing and, and things like that, you might know from with both of you having you know spent so much time looking at um, unusual experiences that you know a lot's very gen- generic information about I getting someone with lower back pain they passed with a chest condition I felt that towards the end they went very quickly uh, you know and yeah. <laughs> some r- really really generic stuff that if that person is desperate for a message they'll see all of those as a positives and very specific and we start to get into that realm of um, astrology and yeah very um, much. And, you know, well, we could mix up Pisces with Capricorn and stuff like that. And <laughs> yeah. it's still saying, you know, you, you're, a, you're a very confident person on the inside, but I'm sure now and then you doubt yourself. But you've got so much hidden potential, which I don't feel you use all the time. This month is your time to shine. Oh, my now, God, it's me. Everyone <laughs> wants a positive message, don't they? I mean, you're not going to agree with a star sign if it says this week you've had some strange body odor that you just can't seem to get away. And <laughs> did you know everyone notices it and they just don't want to tell you? You know, that's also oh me. god that that's yeah. me <laughs> no Michael one wants the too much about you today <laughs> and you can easily do it if you just go and sit at the back and yeah. and watch a demonstration even though there's a the potential for targeting and someone claiming mediumship and taking them forward for further experimentation just a simple test is watching the one person they've targeted and just get a piece of paper and make a tally chart of positive and negatives how many times they said something that the person confirmed against how many times something was overlooked. They didn't necessarily get a chance to say no, but the medium saw it wasn't drawing a positive, so they moved on, and yet mm-hmm. they still said it anyway. I'm getting um, a David and a, a B, might be Bill. Oh, Bill, Bill, right. Well, Bill said that, hang on, who's David? Hang on, yeah. <laughs> hang on, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Well, surely David wants to say something if it's come through to you. I mean, you've left David hanging here. <laughs> <laughs> Basically just hung up on the guy. <laughs> Poor David. They move too fast sometimes, and sometimes that catches out the sitter, that they're going so fast that they're trying to pay attention uh, and pick out the thing that's the positive, and the, the negatives just get lost because there's too many to handle. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I know... Uh years ago when I was uh, there was one workshop that I was doing and we were we were talking about that we were talking about warm readings and 
and hot readings and all all sorts of things. And uh, it was it was interesting. There was an, a couple of people that were there that had had said, "Oh, I uh, I have to show you this recording of this of this psychic that I went to because it was it was the best I've ever had. It was the best sitting I've ever had. It was so specific." And when you re-listened to it or you read the transcript of it, that's exactly what it was. There was really, they, they were all completely general statements, except the people really yeah. pulled that information and either read into it or were just interpreting it in that way. And my my grandfather, uh, before he passed away, his his wife passed away first. And I remember him at one point bringing to me this this great big transcript of all of these different readings and sittings that he had done with this this medium uh, out of Ontario and you know he was he was bound to prove to me that this was this was the the real deal except he was one of those people that fell into into that that trap or the reading there was nothing specific about it and he had paid this psychic I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars um, yeah. to go back and to go back and to go back. And it was, you know, and it was, it was hard, but it was, it was a moment where I had to say like, you know, you really, this need to strikes me this as, uh, it's the same principle as the social engineering that hackers use to get people to, uh, send money because their grandson or somebody is in jail in a faraway country kind of thing. <laughs> it seems exactly the same thing. I was about to give another example there of all the different ones that they do. There's even ones where they'll go, um, we've, hacked go you, we've, ha- we've hacked your computer and we've been looking through your webcam at the certain things you've been looking at. <laughs> yep. Oh, God. <laughs> And if you do not send us $10,000, then we'll be sending these pictures to your boss and stuff like that. Like, oh, right, right. I think, I think all in all, I mean, the, 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 you know, the role that these people have in, in, in our lives and in, especially for people that are grieving and whatnot, it just goes to show how important the right people are to talk to. Yeah. I mean, that's quite, I, I didn't know that about your grandfather. I mean, that, that's an interesting bit of writing for you to do there. There's some reflexive uh, reflexivity to be had if you're going to write on the the kind of the addiction side of mediumship, because um, I think there's been a lot of really good and important stuff written recently on the positive sides of going to see mediums and how people see it as an alternative to bereavement counselling. There's obviously a hell of a lot of stuff in periodicals, magazines like the Skeptical Inquirer and other ones where you know people have have debunked or they've they've looked at only the anomalistic psychological aspects of people claiming to be mediums but what about the middle ground where there's um maybe an honest medium going on in terms of well Mm. you know there's nothing special coming from them but they they seem to be very honest and sincere and they're not interested in money but there's the middle ground here this person just won't quit that they they've got this circumstance of grief and they just want to keep hearing anything so at what point is enough enough and what do we do with those individuals how do we intervene as researchers psychologists parapsychologists and and try and help this person from this point on especially with the medium's help perhaps um because they might yeah. be also saying like i gave the examples of you don't need to see me anymore it's like with alex tanis and um i edited the book science psychotherapy where he attended psychotherapy sessions with a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist psychotherapist on hand these weren't for necessarily bereavement conditions, but they were various other things that people had. And he was there on their permission that he would lead the session as a psychic, that they weren't to say anything. He would just tell them about their past and what their issues were and why they were there today. 
And then it was led after that by the psychiatrist and the psychotherapist. I mean, this really wowed some of the individuals that he would know their lives in such detail. And there, I guess, is that that addictive pull to want to see Alex again. But that's not the condition he was working with. He wanted to use his abilities to initially help them and hand them into the capable hands of the psychotherapist and the psychiatrist who was there as well. So there was this really interesting trio where a medium could perhaps do the same, working in, in tandem with a counselling psychologist, a psychotherapist, a bereavement specialist, and, and saying, right, you know, this is clearly a bad case of bereavement. Don't say anything, but these are the messages that I'm getting. This is the certain information. Um, I've, we've written it down now. Just tick any ones that are relevant to you and, and your personal loss. And if there's any questions you want me to ask them, or vice versa, no, go ahead now, and, that, and then leave it there, off into the hands of the uh, counselling psychologist and, and, and the bereavement specialist. There, there's so many ways that you could experimentally start to look into that as an alternative therapy with traditional therapies and mix the two, where you can actually be testing the quality of the medium at the same time. Yeah, oh, I, I love that. I, yes, I love that. Really I, cool. I think, yeah, like there's, because I, I think that's the spirituality side of of grief counseling and bereavement. I th- it's just so important. And I mean, for for me, I mean, I've, I've lost my best friend Steph years ago. She co-founded Entity Seeker with me. Um, you know, I lost my dad at a very early age. I have like, a number of friends. Like, it's just it's been something that is a, a continuous theme uh, throughout my life. And you know, I I can't imagine not having that that spiritual side of things to, to fall back on, honestly. Like I've, I've had, uh, you know, so many experiences and then experiences afterwards where, you know, it, I, I, I think I've been, been visited by, by, by them or by the consciousness that was them. Um, and you know, it is, it's, it's a really, it's a, for me anyway, Mike, I don't know how you feel about this, but it's, it's like a, it's a way to, to redefine, to redefine death and to redefine grief. Yeah, I, I, I feel exactly the same way. Uh, recently, it, it's weird, but I had my cat pass away. And Morgan and I have talked about this before. And uh, it was three, four days afterward. And I could hear uh, in my mind's eye, I, I knew it wasn't in the room, but I could hear my cat crying. Uh, but mm. in a way, it wasn't. it wasn't like his, I'm terrified cry. It was just like his, you know, Hey, I'm around. It was one of those kind of things. And uh, I realized that although it was coming from somewhere inside me at the same time, it did exactly what we were talking about earlier. What you were talking about was it gave me hope that Mm. maybe my little kitty is, is somewhere and he's okay. And I don't know, you know, what part of me created that experience or or anything or whether or not it was actually my cat reaching out to me but at the same time it was that experience that made it feel like it's okay to let him go hmm. there's a few papers in um, omega journal of death and dying on um, pet loss and i think specifically they were aiming more at cats and dogs um but i've met loads of people where they've um, lost a cat and they said they've had consistent corner of the eye phenomena where they've seen the cat walk past and they've looked and, and not seen anything directly. Or a lot of the times being in the kitchen and they've seen corner of the eye, it's jumped up on the kitchen counter as it did. And it's shocked them. They've, they've suddenly, you know, jumped backwards and looked directly where they've seen the jump and they're not seen it. But had they stayed in the position that they did, they felt they would have, you know, 
continue to see this this cat roaming around in their perif uh, peripheral vision. So everything from that corner of the eye phenomena, when when you're clearly focusing on something else, but you've still got this kind of this um, alarm system, this alert in in your own um, psychology that a cat lives in this house and you know it usually does this and that so there might be that expectancy level mm -hmm. but usually the peripheral is alerting you to um, a potential danger or certain movement so for example sometimes you know uh, we might be say sat on the couch in the living room and you you instantly turn to the left or right and your eyes suddenly target the carpet thinking it's a house spider when actually it's just a bit of fluff off of someone's jacket a bit of you know dark thread um but it's doing the right thing though it's alerting you to something that's uh shouldn't be on that cream carpet or light colored carpet that suddenly stood out and the peripheral has told you quickly look over there it could be a threat to you that fast moving spider or something like that um you know you're not necessarily be watching the telly expecting it to be there so it's quite interesting in those instances with the cat that people have those and there's a beautiful book by raymond bayless um it's out of print now but it, it's still you can find it on places like Abbey Books and eBay. They're still looking about, but it's simply called Animal Ghosts. And he'd looked at loads of instances of, of people having um, apparitions of cats, dogs, horses, and, and various other animals as well. We've had, uh, or we had for, my mom and I have had for a number of years in the family, a a, a cat that we nicknamed Horatio because it seemed to follow <laughs> us from house to house. It was a traveler. But it was it was so interesting because he was a he he was a white cat, long legs, um, like I I could draw him like we we'd seen him so many times and so clearly, and the our the guests anybody that would come over to the house the the family house or whatever would also see him and would also think that we had a cat and we we <laughs> did not it was <laughs> you know at one point we did have a cat but it this was not the cat that we had. And we have no idea to this day where he came from, who he was, um, but to the point where you would walk by a room and see him sitting in the doorway and you would turn around because you thought a cat was in the house. And it was like exactly what you were saying. There was a lot of the out of the corner of your eye type thing, but there was a number of times as well where, you know, you'd be sitting on the couch and watching television or something like that, and you'd see a tail and ears or just pieces of this cat kind of wandering through the, the living room. Mm. And it was just the, the neatest thing. I love that with the guests. I mean, true spontaneity in any after-death um, after communication or just uh, the day-to-day -day spontaneous experiences, those really fascinate me. Um, and it's interesting to hear that with other people reporting you know, an animal is not, not a human shape that they're pointing out. Um, are both of you familiar with Alan Gold? Yes. So, um, Alan Gold, um, he, he lives locally to me. Um, he's at least in the city centre near enough of Nottingham, so a half hour drive or so. Um, I sometimes go to his house for tea with Dr. Matthew Coburn, who wrote a brilliant book called Pluralism in the Mind. But Alan Gould wrote um, The Founders of Psychical Research. He did a textbook on hypnotism. He did a book called Mediumship and Survival, which is an incredible piece of work. Um, and when we go around to his house, he, he just chats about all kinds of things. Incredibly intelligent guy, um, former president of the SPR and journal editor and many other things. And he was based at the Uni University of Nottingham for a long time. Um, but I remember one of the last times we ran, went around to his house, he told us an interesting one that he'd heard quite recently. And so this, this was in the past couple of years. And he said, oh, yeah, we had an insurance guy here recently because uh, we had something. So he had to come around, take photos, make some notes. And he wandered around our house. And Alan has a lot of he has about 27 bookcases in his house 
to house the books that he does have in the house, let alone those in the garage. And um, the guy had been, I think, just casually glancing at the kinds of books that he got in there, probably not really understanding most of the titles. But once he'd done his surveying, he came back to Alan and he said, uh, oh, uh, are you interested in in ghosts and hauntings by any chance? And Alan, <laughs> I, I guess, um, really underplaying it, said, yeah, I've got a vague interest. <laughs> and he said, oh, you might be interested in this. A um, couple of weeks ago, I was out surveying another house. They'd had a burst water pipe upstairs and it damaged all the, the floorboards and the, the carpet. So I had to go up and do something similar. I had to take my photographs. I had to write a report and... Um, then uh, speak to the owners and uh, take it back to the insurance company. But anyway, it was a very large house like your own with a big grand staircase. And uh, on the uh, centre part of the stairs where it then starts to turn left or right, there was enough space to have a chair right in the corner. Um, and so I, I've been up the stairs and I was on the landing and I was doing the surveying and um, realised that I passed a lady sat in the chair on the, on the stairs. And so I nodded to her and she smiled and nodded back and I got on with the surveying. And uh, later on when I was done, I went back to the landing and she wasn't there anymore. So I went downstairs and spoke to the owner and said, I'm finished now and it's this, this and this. This is what we need to do. By the way, um, forgive me, I'm not sure how they're related to you, but was that your your mother sat on the, the stairs? Um, I had a friendly nod and smile to her, but she didn't say anything. And the guy said, apparently the guy's face just went white and the guy said to the insurance guy, oh, her. Please don't mention her. Um, don't don't talk about her. Just ignore her, please. And uh, and the guy thought, what on earth are you talking? What is it? You ignore your mother? And it transpired that the guy knew perfectly well what he was talking about. And he said, look, she she's got nothing to do with me. She's not a relative. She's always been here since I moved in. She haunts the place. The more you talk about her, the more she ends up wandering about or sitting there. And I don't like it. Just please don't talk about her. And it, you know, I, wow. I just. I just thought, wow, you know, the fact that the guy was so blase. Oh, her, please don't pay any attention to her. <laughs> I love those. And so for the insurance guy, he was absolutely freaked because he'd not gone in there with any expectations. He was just doing his job, reacted to someone else inside the house, didn't see them later, so questioned it after the fact. And then everything starts to marry together. And there you have a very beautiful instance of someone who is clearly very sane and perfectly healthy and they've had a very healthy hallucination of something that other people see as well <laughs> yeah. so something that is not holding any physical presence um and comes and goes but you you can describe its its physical form and features and it seems to have some awareness of you which is very interesting that's just it's so, it's so cool i just it's that kind of thing that just you know makes you want to keep going <laughs> with all of this those ones do give you little rays of hope that you know actually yeah. there's something to these experiences because these people mm -hmm. weren't primed like an after-death communication they're not in a state of bereavement they are just doing their day-to-day -day thing and they end up in the right place at the right time yeah absolutely and in the right state of mind mm -hmm. absolutely <laughs> the right state of mind. thank you so much for for all of this this is just um, just amazing and I'm, I'm sure everybody listening has heard has learned a lot from from this last 45 minutes what how what are you up to how can people find you tell the audience what you what you what you're doing next and and where they can find you oh, I'm, I'm doing all sorts really I've probably got my foot in too many doors we, we've literally just interviewed for a um, new PhD student working on the flotation tanks where we're doing sci-based experiments with those 
because we have a new flotation tank on campus that we can put together mm. and then take take down when we're done with it. Um, I've got PhD students working on diet and sigh and mediumship and um, COVID and lockdown scenarios and the incidence wow. of apparitions within lockdown. Um, a number of things. My own projects, I need to get out another printing, a second printing of Telephone Calls from the Dead because it's been out of print for a number of years now and I get asked daily for copies. I'm certainly not a businessman. I'm clearly a scientist <laughs> who doesn't know how to make money <laughs> and I'm killing my own cash cow. Um, so that needs to come out. I need to revise the whole thing as well. I'm steadily working on that, but I'm juggling other books. I'm trying to steadily put together a biography of D. Scott Rogo. Excellent. And th the whole section on his murder is now spreading into two to three chapters. And um, that whole case now surrounding his murder is, is still being looked at because there are things that we unearthed that realized that, um, you know, they, they weren't properly investigated at the time um, to the extent that they could have been. Yeah. Um, so that's going on. I, I Every year at Christmas time, I get re-obsessed with um, Christmas ghosts. And mm -hmm. I keep telling myself to write something, an actual small book on that. So You absolutely I might should. Get... And then you can come back here and talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Talk about Christmas ghosts. So yeah. I'll get around to that. Yeah, there's loads. I'm, I'm even sat next to right now my notebook, which is my notebook of book ideas. And so that's just full of potential titles for different yeah. things. And I've got research papers I'm working on here, there and everywhere. Just had a paper come out on staring detection in the Australian Journal of Parapsychology. Uh, yeah, all sorts. I'm very, very active. But my website is um, all the W's, CallumECooper.com. And if you go on Amazon and just type in Callum E. Cooper, you'll usually find my author page um, and books on there. And also things might pop up on YouTube as well if you put my name in there. I've been on New Thinking Aloud. Uh, some of my lectures have been recorded. Um, so you'll find me under that name or just as cal cooper both names seem to to draw up things well and we'll we'll re repost links and share stuff and you know it's what we do so <laughs> wonderful also twitter as well by the same name calamy cooper follow me on twitter i still can't i'm still getting used to twitter i don't know i don't know what it is about twitter i'm getting there <laughs> i don't tweet as much as i should probably one tweet tweet yeah. a week but I, I do realize that the more i tweet the more people follow so i do need to tweet a bit more yeah i know we both need to work on we will we'll work on that together i'll retweet you if you retweet me <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll tweet your tweets if you tweet my tweets perfect we'll get yeah <laughs> thank get a you room. cal so much hey <laughs> <laughs> thank you cal so much you're most welcome it sounds like we've only just started i know but well because you, you got to come back so <laughs> i will do Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called building the momentum. A common problem that us humans run into is distraction, especially distraction from what is really making us happy. It seems like a contradiction, but many times the things that make us the most excited can fall on the back burner to other things that take up our attention. We can water down the momentum of our things that we are manifesting by losing focus or believing things like, I have no time, or I found something else to do even though I really wanted to do that. This can be because we have a limitation in our beliefs that subjects are competing with one another, when in reality, the universe has the ability to flow every subject that is important to you in a way 
that will advance them. These beliefs can cause contradictory energy that propels us nowhere fast. This is often because we are not allowing enough momentum to build around the things that inspire us, and we lose the energetic momentum by watering it down with limited thought. Get out your journal or a piece of paper and begin to write down the why of the thing you really want to do. Start with one subject. Don't allow the how to bog down your thinking and leave behind the logical constraints of, I don't have enough time. Just begin to let the why flow. Say things like, I want this because, or this makes me feel like. Let the thoughts around the thing you want build enough, and it is our promise to you, the inspiration and guidance on the how will come your way. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.